Welcome. This is uh, the program Ethics Today, and today we're interviewing uh, Chris Main, who we talked to a few weeks ago about vaccines and, uh, and virus testing, and I've asked him to come back today so we can talk more about uh, how we develop vaccines, but also the question of um, scientific thinking. Why do scientists seem to keep changing their minds on so many crucial issues? And um, Chris, by the way, is a professor of biology at Viterbo University. His background is immunology. And um, so he's a great person to talk about some of these issues. And uh, so welcome. Thank you for joining us, Chris. Yeah, thanks for having me again, Rick. Um, I want to talk, first of all, about uh, vaccines, because we, we've heard some really interesting news uh, past week about uh, some new developments in vaccines. Um, I know that, uh, scientists in, in China are working on producing something where they've had some real promising results with some human test subjects. Uh, there's a, a development uh, in, um, I think it was AstraZeneca, uh, along with the University of Oxford, is developing something. And uh, the United States actually purchased rights um, for, I think, 300 million doses of it, which if the testing proves successful, they could distribute in October. But there's also other companies working on this. And so I want to ask you, um, first of all, how do vaccines get developed and tested? And then why does it take so long? Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. So. Vaccines undergo the same sort of uh, testing procedures that any sort of drug in humans would undergo. And so we have the FDA phase one, phase two, phase three testing, uh, which involves uh, testing first sort of uh, relative dosages and testing for safety, right? So one of the biggest concerns we have to have with any sort of drug in humans is first do no harm, right? And so it has to be safe. And so we test for safety. And then we test for what's called efficacy. Efficacy just means, hey, does it work, right? Does it actually prevent uh, this illness in a way that is uh, at a high enough rate for this to be worthwhile? And then sort of the different phases also uh, move through relative sizes, right? And so as you get towards the end, you need to uh, test this in a very large group, uh, preferably of a diverse patient set and patient background to see if we can now uh, take this out into the country to distribute it. And then there's actually uh, post-approval uh, monitoring that happens as well, where we keep uh, sort of checking in on these drugs, seeing how uh, this affects and uh, affects the disease and, and whether there's long-term effects as well uh, that we can track. And so vaccines undergo this the same as any other drug uh, would. And so this process takes a very long time. The, I think the fastest we've ever actually gotten out a vaccine before is something like four years. Um, and so others like, say, chickenpox, it took 20 years. And so there's multiple reasons for that. Some of them are, say, economic drivers, and some are just particular challenges, right? HIV, for example, we've been trying to consider vaccines for that since uh, it was first discovered. That's an extremely, extremely hard virus to target, something that I think is going to be harder than, say, the novel coronavirus, actually. Um so I understand why with the development of many drugs, there, you want to do really rigorous testing to make sure there aren't side effects, and including side effects that uh, completely outweigh, negatively outweigh the benefits of them. Uh, but with a 
uh, with the vaccine, are, are there potential negative side effects? I'm wondering why with a vaccine, you can't just proceed right into testing. Once you get good results in the lab, why can't you go right into testing of the population? Yeah, so that's, uh, that's a really good question. So it sort of depends. So when it comes to say seasonal flu vaccines, seasonal flu vaccines are essentially the same sort of uh, sort same sort of recipe, I guess you could say, and same sort of creation process from every season. And because those have to be brand new every single year, and we're sort of guessing, you know, this time of year what seasonal flu vaccine we'll need for next winter, those actually aren't going to undergo the same sort of placebo-controlled um, investigation because it's already all been tested in that way before, right? Right. But when it's something like this, there are experimental vaccines that have had negative side effects. In fact, sort of counterintuitively, it has happened in the past, rarely, but it can happen where the vaccine can actually make things worse. Um, you can imagine, right, say one of the things that makes novel coronavirus particularly dangerous or deadly is when a patient's immune system actually responds too much. And so this creates what sometimes is referred to as the cytokine storm, some of you might have read about. And so basically the immune system overreacts. We get an extreme response to this infection, and it's actually the immune response sometimes that causes more damage to, in these uh, large pandemic uh, viruses. Um, pandemic influenza was similar. Oftentimes, the side effects of the immune response are worse. And so if you create a vaccine that actually somehow exacerbates that, that would be a negative effect that you could imagine occurring. And that's why we need to make sure we do test these and uh, trial these. Now, the good news is, is right now there's, uh, as of just today, I believe it was updated or yesterday, uh, there's 15 vaccines being tested in human trials. And these 15 vaccines that are being tested in human trials, none of them have had any safety concerns come up yet. So okay. that's a good sign. Um, they're gonna go now into, uh, some of them are already starting uh, placebo-controlled trials. Um, so we are moving through this at a rate that is completely unprecedented and has not been seen before. Well, I was surprised by just doing some reading about this over the weekend. I, I was surprised to learn that, that one of the things we didn't know until recently was whether it was even possible to develop protective immunity uh, against this particular virus, right? Are, are there some viruses where it's really not possible at all to develop a vaccine? So there, there are some that at least we have never had success in developing a vaccine for. So HIV is chief among them. HIV has been one of the main uh, public health concerns for all of humanity, really, uh, for quite some time, right? It was, at least for my age, that was the big bad that we always heard about, right? And so people have been trying to create um, vaccines for HIV forever and with very, very little success. In fact, the couple that have been tried have been uh, ineffective or have made things worse sometimes. And HIV is very different than uh, SARS coronavirus 2 or the novel coronavirus, luckily. Um, mm -hmm. HIV mutates extremely at an extremely high rate and extremely effectively to avoid the immune response. Not only that, HIV actually attacks immune cells. So I, HIV actually eliminates the same sort of immune cells you might want to actually be utilizing to attack that virus. Okay. So HIV is sort of its own particular challenge. 
that I don't think any scientists are that pessimistic about SARS coronavirus 2 because this novel coronavirus, though it's mutating like anything mutates, our DNA is mutating all the time, right? Viruses particularly mutate. It doesn't seem to be mutating or evolving in any more, uh, in any way to make it more infectious or able to be evading the immune system or more deadly or any of these things that we might worry about. And so I think people are pretty optimistic that we can get protection. Now, how long that'll last is the challenge because other coronaviruses, like the one that sort of causes some of the common cold symptoms, it seems that uh, immunity for that does wane over time. So you could imagine, what does that mean? Maybe it means that we'd need a vaccine with boosters, or maybe we could create a vaccine that's particularly uh, good and doesn't need those things. But those are just all being considered. And like you said, it's this is so new, right? It's so new that we didn't even know about that. This virus didn't really even exist until this last fall, right? It's newly evolved. And so because of that, uh, we're learning all these things as we go. And just within, as you mentioned, the last few weeks, we started getting pretty decent ideas that there are neutralizing antibodies that provide some sort of at least partial protection uh, to individuals who have been infected before. Okay, so there you just used a term of art for, for those of you who work in that field, neutralizing antibodies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's, that's what you're trying to produce with the vaccine, right? So explain what a neutralizing antibody is. Yeah, so a neutralizing antibody. So when we get sick, naturally our immune system produces antibodies. And I think most of us have heard of antibodies and we know, hey, that's a good thing that keeps us uh, from getting sick, right? Well, what antibodies do is they stick to infectious agents like viruses or bacteria and keep them from being able to either divide and uh, proliferate or keep them from getting into our cells. And so neutralizing antibodies are antibodies that we already have in our body that are just waiting around. And as soon as that virus gets in us, they stick to that virus and keep it from being able to get into our cells and to replicate itself. And so that's the end goal of pretty much any vaccine to create neutralizing antibodies that keep us from ever getting infected in the first place when we're exposed. So it does seem people raise those in response to uh, SARS coronavirus 2, at least some patients do. Now some don't have particularly high levels of these. And so uh, that those sort of things are still being investigated. Um, so, and here's another, just a clarification question. I'm just curious about this. Uh, I was reading that in, in some of the early trials, there's vaccines that um, seem to produce antibodies that stick to the virus, um, but they don't destroy it. However, they keep people from developing certain symptoms. So like they, they might be effective at preventing pneumonia in people who've been given that vaccine, but they don't keep people from being infected with COVID-19. So could you explain how that works? Yeah, and so I know exactly uh, the study you're referring to, actually. And so this, so what can happen sometimes, right, is you can bind to these uh, viruses, which keeps them from, because what happens is the path of entry, right, is we inhale this virus into our upper respiratory tract. But then what really makes this a particularly deadly and dangerous virus is it moves into the deeper portions of our lung and causes uh, internal deeper uh, lower respiratory tract uh, challenges. Now, what you're saying is that in that study, what they found was that there wasn't as much virus accumulating 
in the lower respiratory tract, but there did seem to still be evidence of the virus in the upper respiratory tract. Now, what wasn't really known is was that active virus? Was that live virus? Because again, going back to our conversation on testing last time, right? Those initial tests that we do uh, for the nucleic acid, for the RNA, um, so-called PCR tests, what they look for is they just look for, hey, is some of that genetic code there? It doesn't tell us whether it's live or infectious or not. So we know that there was still genetic code in the upper respiratory tract. What we don't know is was that even still infectious virus or not? And so, I mean, that, that data you're talking about is, I mean, I think a week old, right? And so that's pretty, pretty brand new stuff. Okay. Well, I, I wanted to get into the weeds a little bit on some of this stuff because I wanted also to talk about how science works. And, and it, it's so confusing with those of us who do not regularly read up on these fields, immunology and epidemiology and so forth. And, and yet now we're, we're getting front page news stories on these topics because they are guiding both policy decisions by you know, state, local, and federal governments, and they're also guiding decisions about daily behavior. You know, should we wear a mask? You know, what precautions should my business be taken and so forth? And it seems like uh, scientists keep changing their minds. And, um, and, and this can lead to a frustration and say, well, nobody knows what they're talking about, right? So explain to us why why it is that's what really is going on and scientists keep changing their minds or is from the point of view of somebody who's who gets in the weeds on these things what what are you seeing yeah and this is something that i am particularly sympathetic towards is that now unlike any other time that i can remember uh pretty much everyone is very much aware of the process of science in real time right and so going back to the idea that this virus something brand new to earth or at least brand new to humanity um, but it seems probably brand new to earth because it came from bats went into humans and it's evolved along that process right it probably didn't exist prior to this fall and so now we're learning about this virus as we actually uh, study it and because of that we're also watching this pandemic progress right in a way that's unlike things we've seen before i mean it it tracks with lots of other pandemics things we've used for other pandemics should work but you know, some of we're in a different time now and there might be different approaches to this. Now, it's not an uncommon thing in science for there to be one suggested idea that then gets argued at by another group, right? And then eventually there's discussion, new evidence comes out and all of a sudden, oh, we realize that in the end, this other idea wasn't the best, that this instead is going to work better. Now, this is a feature, not a, not a bug of science. This is how science works always. And it can be over the most, uh, you know, the, the sort of things oftentimes we as scientists are arguing about is, you know, over this particular pathway that allows for the development of a wing and fruit fly. And we're studying that because that can actually then give us insight into how human development works or something. And we're arguing, these people are arguing very vehemently about it. And uh, there'll be one idea thought that will then change into another idea. And eventually there's a consensus built. Well, those sort of discussions usually aren't that big a deal to the public. But now that we're having these conversations about a pandemic, and as you say, Rick, these arguments affect things we do on a daily basis. You guys, everyone is seeing the process of this, right? And how doubt 
and having doubt in science is a good thing, right? I think um, no one should listen to this video and only take my word, right? I'm trying to communicate the, my best understanding of it, but I come from the perspective of an immunologist. My expertise is mostly on the immune side of things. And I'm trying to also communicate about public health things. So make sure you listen to other public health experts out there. But these, this doubt is a good thing for scientists. But when you think of uh, other leaders, say, in the, in the world, oftentimes we would see a politician and a politician showing doubt or not being 100% certain of their convictions as a sign of weakness. But in science, being uh, able and willing to change your mind in light of new evidence is an extreme strength. Well, in a, in a way, it's also how you advance professionally, right? Because if there's a, if there's a, a certain kind of consensus around, say, how, how something works in, in any area of science, and you can come up with a model and provide good evidence that shows like the consensus is wrong, that's career making. And so there's an incentive to, to come up with something new, to cast doubt upon the received view. Is that right? I, I think that is a, a beautiful point and something that I want to actually touch on because sometimes I think one of the big misunderstandings of science uh, from folks out there and what makes people maybe more prone to some sort of uh, conspiracy theories that go around is the idea that science is this big establishment and that having ideas counter to that establishment is dangerous to you. Like if you try to prove something or you've discovered something that runs counter to the consensus, to dogma, then you're now seen as an outcast and you're attacked. And that's actually very much not the case. Uh, in fact, as you say, Rick, the people who win Nobel Prizes, the most famous scientists of all time, are those people who discovered something that was against the consensus. And when they uh, brought up this idea, the consensus people and the other scientists were like, I think you're crazy. You, you must be out of your mind. And they argue, but if they have solid science and they can prove it, then these people come around and they're, oh my gosh, you're right, you've shown it to us. And then that person becomes extremely famous and well-known scientist because they were able to prove to a group of skeptical scientists something that was a truth that they weren't understanding. And a good example of this would be like the cause of ulcers, right? The, a scientist a long ago thought he discovered that bacteria were the cause of ulcers, not just stress, right? And at the time, the establishment didn't agree with that at all, and then he proved it. And that person then won a Nobel Prize or the women who discovered CRISPR, which we hear in the news all the time, right? We're trying to convince people that this was a useful tool. It wasn't just some weird thing bacteria do to get rid of viruses. Those women proved that, and now they're some of the most famous scientists on the, uh, on the globe, and they're probably gonna win a Nobel Prize for that. So I'm, I'm wondering if, so if you're, if you're a scientist, what are, what are you reading to keep up to date on and what's going on right now? Because of course you're following your field and in a way this kind of is your field, but I'm, um, but I'm talking about anything that might be going on uh, in the present day and you wanna know what's really going on. You, you, you go to the mainstream media, are they doing a good job of reporting what's going on or do you supplement that with some other reliable sources? Yeah, and so I have a sort of a mix of doing this. So like you say, some of this is in my field. And so the actual 
getting into the nuts and bolts of the molecular biology and cellular biology of how um, the immune system is responding to this, or even vaccine development. I spend a lot of my time reading about those things uh, instead of in the popular press in the actual literature, scientific literature, just because that's more my area of expertise and so I can get into that. But what I have changed about my reading in this pandemic is I've become much more broad in the number of people I follow who are epidemiologists and public health. Um, and so I am someone who uh, utilizes Twitter as an aggregator of sources. And so I follow a few different epidemiologists. I follow many different science writers whose work I really enjoy. Um, and so epidemiologists, I, I really enjoy Carl Bergstrom, uh, Natalie Dean, Caitlin Rivers. These are all people who are often quoted in some of the uh, large uh, popular press articles as well, right? They're often quoted in say the New York Times or the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal or Forbes or um, The Atlantic. Um, my favorite science writer who's been writing a lot about this is Ed Yong with The Atlantic. Um, Award-winning and very good at communicating in a way that can be understood by everyone. Well, I'm, I'm going to be posting this on my YouTube channel. Could you, could you just in the comment section list some of those people that, that you follow um, so that anybody who might be interested can go to that and look, look at yeah. it? Yeah, I would, I would love to. And one of the other things that I find very almost inspirational uh, is what's called the COVID-19 vaccine tracker. And so if you just Googled that, and I'll, I'll share this as well, but if you just Googled that, it actually uh, updates a couple times a week with vaccines where they're at in each part of the FDA approval process. And you can click on each one, and it'll explain to you how it works, whether this one is one based upon a killed uh, SARS coronavirus, or whether this is one based upon a fragment of that SARS coronavirus, whether this is one based upon using RNA that our body then creates that vaccine within us from. And it'll actually explain those a little bit. It also links out to drugs that are being tested. And so if nothing else, I find just looking at those numbers and seeing these things progress to be inspirational to me to show me there are people out there working on this, right? People are making progress. I know it seems like these are long timelines we're talking about, but really things are moving faster and sort of with a unique focus that we've never really seen before in history. And I think that's something to think of as a positive. So, so one final question for you. Say, say, you know, we've got all these vaccines being tested. We get something that looks really promising. The U.S. government, CDC, purchases, you know, 300 million doses and makes them available in October. Um, do you have your family line up to take the vaccine? So if it was available immediately uh, in these, uh, and it's being widespread and rolled out, and it's undergone the testing, I would, yes. Because even though this is undergoing at a rate that is not been seen before, I still, uh, put my trust in the fact that that is, uh, is being looked at in a way uh, that I can trust. And enough of the technology is so well established, like really the, you know, the, the things that are in the vaccine, right? The adjuvant, which helps stimulate our immune system, the actual excipients are called, the other stuff that's in there that gets injected, right? All of those are undoubtedly safe. We know that, right? The question is, is whether this new part of the vaccine or this part of the virus 
will somehow, in the way it interacts in our body, somehow make things worse or just not work, right? And so those are the things that are being tested. And since they're starting placebo controlled trials right now, since they've already looked at safety, you know, by the time these things do roll out, um, I really do think we're gonna have a pretty good handle on this. Now, we're, we will have shortened the time frame of that, but not all of that is just by taking shortcuts, right? Um, some of it is by doing things differently, but also some of it's because we have a unique focus and a unique ability right now. I mean, if for no other reason, we have lots of people who are exposed to this disease and lots of people are getting it. So it's easier to roll out a clinical trial as well because it's not that hard to find people who are exposed. Um, and in reality, I don't think it's particularly realistic to think someone like me is going to have access to it in October. Um, just because I think the first rollout will probably occur among people on the front lines working in this uh, area. And we're still talking about probably you know, a year maybe before that happens. I, maybe I'm being a bit, you know, maybe I'm not being as, as hopeful at the speed of this process as usual. But another thing I'll share is an actual sort of little tool where you can choose which steps in the process to try to shorten in different ways and how you can shorten this timeline that usually happens with vaccine creation. I'll share one of those in the comment as well. It's kind of neat because it allows you to visualize why these things take a long time and the specific steps that we can shorten to try to speed things up. Okay, okay. Thank you so much, Chris. This is really helpful for me, and I hope it's helpful for our listeners. And Yeah, and, uh, I hope people uh, find it helpful. Thanks again, it was a great time. Okay, take care.